Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. We never had to impeach a single witness with a depot. I've never had that happen (laughs) because we had the boards there and they just, they knew what they had said in their depot. And I'd have them come get off the stand, walk down to the easel where I had the board. And I'd say, this is a rule, this is a rule, this is a rule, isn't it true, this is a rule. Yes, 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 yes. And you broke this rule and you broke this rule. I mean, you know, there was, they had nowhere to run. And the jury's not just hearing that, they're seeing the witness agree to it in writing on something that I'm not writing on a pad up there. Jurors are saying we came to court with, mm-hmm. you know, that must be real. Please rise. Court is now in session. How are you uh, holding up? I'm, I'm in a hotel in Athens, uh, Athens, Georgia, right by uh, the beautiful University of Georgia right now. And it's uh, it's pouring rain here. Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm holding up. I'm a little jealous that you're in Athens, although not the best weather for it. Um, I'm in Athens stuck in my hotel room because it's way too wet to go anywhere. So. That makes you that makes you prep for the depots instead of uh, that's right. doing maybe other more fun things. That's right. That's right. Um, well, you're in the town of one of my alma maters and we have a graduate from one of my other alma maters on the show today. I'm so excited. Um, so let's go ahead and introduce our guests, Ron Johnson and Jay Vaughn. They are both from the law firm of Hindi Johnson Vaughn. Um, Emory. They're in Kentucky. They've got offices in Louisville and Fort Mitchell, and you can look them up at justicestartshere.com, one of the easiest websites we've had in a while, Steve. Um, But Ron and Jay, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. We're excited. Um, well, we y'all have a great result um, for us to talk about a great case. There's so much to talk about in this case. I think it's going to be tricky to fit it all into the time that we have to talk about it. Um, before we, we dig into that, um, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you for, for um, those of our listeners who don't know who y'all are already. And as I alluded to, um, one of our guests, Ron, went to Rhodes. I'm pumped for uh, all the, I know we've got at least one other Rod, Rhodes College listener, which is Peyton from our <laughs> who firm. Is, who, uh, <laughs> we, 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 uh, we scour the Rhodes campus looking for yeah. uh, people to come work for our law firm. Yeah, so excuse <laughs> me for doing Somehow a little... we, mi- we missed out on Ron. I mean. <laughs> Somehow. So excuse me for doing a little Rhodes, pandering to the Rhodes fans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ron has spent his career representing families and people who've been injured by defective drugs, medical devices, dangerous property conditions, semi-truck collisions, all of the the big cases that you would expect from a Rhodes graduate. Um, He's an AV rated lawyer. He's a former uh, president of the Kentucky um, Justice Association, uh, many times super lawyer. And he's he's done something that um, some of our guests have done, but I think is is really is really tricky, really tricky, um, and a lot of responsibility. Which is, um, he's held uh, numerous leader pos- leadership positions in in nationwide litigation. Has served as lead or co counsel of multiple um, multi district litigations, which we've done a few episodes about cases like that. Um, and it's a ton of work. Um, Ron has tried. Numerous complex cases, including a medical device case that uh, resulted in a verdict of over $7 million, uh, the tremendous result that we're going to talk about today, so I won't talk about that yet, um, it has negotiated settlements up to $230 million, not too sh- shabby. Um, so, Ron, And I didn't even ask uh, if I can call you Ron, since you're- Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, Ron, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. 
And um, I will tell everybody about Jay next. Jay has got a, um, we were talking about it before we started recording. He's got a Zoom setup that is better than mine and Steve's. Yes. Um, so we have no excuse for that, Steve. We got to up our game. Um, Jay is from Louisville, Kentucky. He went to undergrad at Murray State and law school at Salmon P. Chase College of Law at um, Northern Kentucky University. Uh, he's also an AV rated lawyer and a many time Kentucky super lawyer. Um, in 2020 and 21, Jay was recognized as one of the top 50 Kentucky super lawyers. Um, Jay has, has tried tons of cases, also in difficult areas, automobile collision to nursing home neglect cases. And he is board certified in trucking accident cases through um, the National Board of Trial Advocacy. And he serves on the board of both the Kentucky Justice Association and AAJ, which we talk about a lot. So, Jay, thank you for being here with your uh, fancy Zoom setup as well. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. You know, I mean, when COVID hit, I had to start investing in this stuff to because we did so many depositions from yeah. our home and our and, and you know and remotely uh which ron and i i know will talk about about this trial about all the work we did during covid to get this to trial but had, so you know my my first microphone headset people complained it didn't work so to buy another one so you know it eventually got it right yeah well it's a it's a good investment for these times i have um i have like for those for everybody who can't see me, I have these giant headphones and then this microphone that's on a stand, which is the same thing I use if I have to do something in front of court. But I think one of the first times I had to argue a Zoom hearing, opposing counsel called Jeff um, from our firm afterwards and, and was basically like, yeah, you know, Yvonne did a good job. And he was like, man, that was a real intense uh, yeah. <laughs> setup. Though. So I think on the Zoom, everybody was kind of making fun of me behind my back. I, right, I did right. not realize you wore the headphones in front of the in front of a judge. That's, uh, that's bold. Well, it, it sounds so much better than just using like yeah. the built in mic on your laptop. But our microphone doesn't have built in headphones anyway. I, I got to figure I got to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I'll go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about the, the terrific result that you got, that you all got recently. Um, and as you mentioned, Jay, this was. This was a what I would consider still a COVID trial, and certainly the way you all had to work it up was during COVID. And so, the 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 amount of time with which you were able to get this case to trial and try the case is really impressive. So I want to make sure we dig into that. Um, but first, I'll tell our listeners about the case. So the case is um, Alton G. Goodwin. Um, and others against Eaton Asphalt Paving Company. Uh, we'll probably call them Eaton. Um, this was resulted in a $74 million verdict. And I will um, explain a little bit about how we got there and then we'll dig into it. Um, so on the morning of January 9th, 2019, Amy Skiba, who was a retired school counselor, um, was driving her 12-year-old twins to school uh, on a two-lane two -lane road um, called Rich Richwood Road. And um, she was going one way on the road on the road. And in the meantime, in the opposite direction, there was a 2013 Chevrolet flatbed truck um, driven by a man named Devin Carroll. Um, and he was driving towards her. And what happened is that the front tire of his truck went off the side of the road and, and eventually his rear tires. It was a it was a dually type. I don't know if dually is a southern term, but. Um, yeah, what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> um, the, the, the rear tires followed um, and Mr. Carroll lost control of the vehicle. 
and he hit a driveway that was off on the right. And um, that sort of further lost control. And as he came back on the roadway, he he essentially didn't have control of the vehicle. So he went towards oncoming traffic and hit Amy's uh, Honda Accord and she died on impact. Um, so tragically, uh, both of her her twin kids were in the car with her when this happened. And then uh, even worse, her third son, who was 17 years old at the time, was driving himself to school along the road behind her. And so he actually comes up on the accident scene uh, before first responders do. And so all three kids um, witness um, this tragedy and, and the, the death of their their mom. So just really unimaginable. So how does this happen? Why isn't it just a simple road wreck case? Well, one of the things, uh, the main issue here is that Eaton, the the asphalt paving company, had incorrectly repaved the road about two months before this accident. And it's, it's, it's a sort of scenario I think a lot of people can picture without really knowing how much is involved in, in this sort of repaving situation. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. But Eaton had basically gone in, they were, they were working under a state contract to, it sounded like grind down some of the pavement, repave the road. Um, and what they were supposed to do was put in these uh, safety wedges so that because what happened is once they repave the road, the pavement in the repaved section is about uh, one point uh, one and a quarter inches higher um, than the old pavement. And so there's a couple of things that you can do that you guys know better than me. So we'll talk about it um, to deal with that. Um, but this company didn't really do anything. So what that meant was that you had this um, higher section of pavement that there was really no warning that you were about to go off of and was very difficult to get back onto once you had got, basically gone off of that ledge. So it turns out that that's what had happened to um, with Mr. Carroll's vehicle. Um, so once uh, once Jay and Ron dug into this, they found out that the paving company had not done what it was supposed to do under con the contract, had not done a good job. But um, rather than accept responsibility for anything, Eaton, the asphalt company, really blamed it on the state, said, hey, the state said, the uh, state didn't do anything about it. The state said that we didn't have to mill the road basically to, to grind the asphalt down um, and blamed it on the driver, the driver of the Chevy truck, Mr. Carroll. Um, so lots of issues in the case going forward, including some toxicology results uh, that we'll talk about uh, for Mr. Carroll. But the case was tried um, just recently on July 12th, 2021 in Boone County, Kentucky, and the jury found in favor of the plaintiff, as I mentioned, um, they awarded this case was brought on behalf of Amy's three surviving children, and the jury awarded $24 million in damages to them, um, which then where, where that number came from was $3 million for the emotional distress. I mean, all three kids had witnessed what happened to their mother, and then another $5 million for loss of parental consortium each for the three kids, which is where you get the $24 million. And then the jury also elected to award $50 million in punitive damages, which it's certainly a battle, as we know, as we talk about the show a lot, to even get punitive damages. Um, and to get an award of this side is really tremendous and just shows, shows what... Um, the level of work that Jay and Ron put into this. Um, there's so much I want to ask you guys. There's so much good stuff to talk about here. 
Um, and but before I go too far into asking you all about the facts of the case, I do want to back up to what you mentioned um, earlier, Jay, which is that this accident happens shortly before, I guess, the pandemic really gets going really right before. No, like a year before. <laughs> but you're having to litigate everything and you, you manage to get this case to trial when everything kind of around the country is really slowed down. So um, in addition to you guys correcting me about anything I got wrong about those facts, <laughs> where we'll have time for that, where I'd really like to start is how you all kept this case moving when so many things were getting bogged down. I'll let Ron, I mean, Ron, I'll let Ron address that because I mean, he, he was, he was, you know, lead on this case, but I mean, some stuff he did, to keep their feet to the fire is really what got us to trial. So I'll, I'll kind of let Ron take the lead on this because he he really made the defense work. So, um, right, the, the, the incident happened in January of 2019. We were hired uh, pretty much, I guess, February of 2019. Uh, uh, we used an uh, accident reconstructionist that, you know, Jay does so much trucking accident litigation that he has a lot of accident reconstruction people that he knows and one in particular joe stidham who he likes a lot we had to go out to the scene uh jay and, and joey went out there and did all that to figure out you know we, we had a feeling this sounded like a road edge case um but we needed to make sure so a long way of saying that this didn't get on file right away so uh once it did get on file then we had to amend to bring in uh the state uh, the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet because they oversee everything and they authorize the work and they did the inspection. That added another uh, little bit of delay. So by the time we by the time COVID hits in March of 2019, I think we had taken a couple depositions, um, but uh, it were mainly like records custodian depths. I think Jay did. So when we get to the substantive depositions in this case, and we took a lot. Um, it was it was COVID and, uh, you know, Zoom depots, the very first Zoom depot we did, um, I, I was so ignorant of Zoom and using exhibits. I could not do the deposition without Jay to, uh, <laughs> to, to show the exhibits to the I didn't even know how to share your screen. Now, right. I'm, like a, now I'm like a now I'm like a ninja on Zoom. Right, but, right. <laughs> um, but we, we did. We, we just we really just put our, our our foot on their neck and we never let up. And um, the, the lawyer on their side, God bless him. Um, you know, we were just asking for depositions, anything he balked at, we did not hesitate to go to court. Um, you know, we got to depose one person twice because of in, uh, him improperly instructing the witness not to answer questions. Um, so, you know, we were just very, very aggressive. And to be honest, you know, one thing about COVID and the pandemic was that um, I had just come out of a very large mass tort and MDL I had settled in Chicago. So I, my calendar was kind of clear. Uh, and then with COVID, that made it even more so. Uh, so for me, this case was completely the focus of my practice for all of 2020. Uh, and I think the opposing counsel got the feeling that I worked on nothing other than this case. Uh, <laughs> because uh, we were just in his ear constantly. But yeah, we took all these depositions by Zoom uh, and it really worked out uh, great because uh, you know we could be at our desks, Jay would be at his office across the hall, I'm here. We had so many exhibits, we had all the contracts and documents between them and the, and the transportation cabinet. 
and uh, you know, Jay would help me with the exhibits. I'd have them all on my on my desk. So I have hard copies. We had exhibits up for the witness, um, and we were just able to really. I couldn't believe the quality of what we got from the depositions. Being old school, you know, I'm used to being there in person and just getting after somebody to get what I want. And I I wondered if we would lose that effect going through a camera. But but I don't. Know, I'll let Jay answer. I I don't think we did. I thought. I thought we really got amazing testimony and depositions, given that they were by Zoom. And, and, and I agree with it. I felt that we got, and I've, I mean, I was starting to do remote depots before COVID hit because I just got tired of travel. Obviously, that got enhanced once, once COVID hit. But, uh, I mean, uh, outside of a few witnesses, I just can't see myself wanting to travel for in-person depots because I feel that when I take a depot by Zoom, that the that I'm not in in the room and the conference table right in front of the witness with that kind of animosity and that conflict. There's that separation by screens, and they feel a little bit more relaxed. But they're staring right at you. You're staring right at them. And then we put the the document up, and you can have them side by side. It's pretty powerful, especially on playback. And I felt that because of potential delays, because of make sure you hear. Um, I found that the the witness is more attentive to the question and then easier to just give you an answer and agree with you. And, you know, so the, the approach that we took was uh, that Ron took the lead in the majority of the depositions, like the first deposition taking the case. I like when I do cases, I like to do a records custodian, kind of a, a, a version of a 30B6, but just of a records custodian. And I don't like to take a substantive depot till I get the documents. So I, I get a human under oath and I go through all the documents that they produced. It's a boring depot, but it's important because it helps us get additional documents, go to court with compel motions that we have an actual transcript on. So we did that first and they produced a ton of stuff. Um, we then followed up supplements. We got those documents. Now Ron was ready to take the first subs of deposition, which happened to be the vice president of the company. And it, it, it went great. Um, and he got to depose him again. But we decided because of the newness of COVID and the way Ron does a lot of his, even in trial, you know, he's not a really an outline type that he'll have an, for ideas, but he's just feed off the witness, feed off the document. So instead of him having to worry about, sharing screen and zooming in here and circling this i was like we're in separate offices there's no feedback i go i'll be on zoom video on i'll be muted i'll just be your document guy so i would pull a document and i would have everything through everything i already had exhibit stickers on and then i have it set up on my pdf that adobe that if i need to add an exhibit sticker at with a new document i can add it on the fly electronically and then i just email to the court reporter um so Ron would be talking about Jay pull up the you know exhibit five the contract I'd pull it up he'd be talking about it. without him asking me he said well look at the second paragraph Jay zoom in there and I'd zoom in and then I would just take the highlight feature and I would just start highlighting or circling what he's asking the witness about um, because I know it's demonstrative at that point and if we ever played it back to a jury they would see the live annotation with the witness's face um, and so but we spent a lot of time on the documents what was important about them and i think that me displaying them it, it took it took some stress away from ron or responsibility and he could just now just focus on getting what he needs for the case and you know if you ever saw the depositions i mean they uh, they were about as flawless as you can get and i think i think the tag team approach 
um, was really helpful on that. Yeah, one, I have, more thing, one more thing and then we'll move on off this topic, but I just thought it was funny that the system worked exactly like Jay described it. And it worked so well that in the first couple of depositions, the defense lawyer was asking Jay to pull up exhibits for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. That's always right. nice. That's awesome. And, and that's when Jay's just a little bit slower than he normally <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting <laughs> dressed from the, uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. No, I, I have to say, um, you know, because we've done a ton of, uh, of Zoom depots since this has all started. And, um, you know, and I've heard a lot of lawyers say how they don't really like them. I, I'm the opposite. I actually do like them because just for what you two said is how you can use the documents, how you can put them up there. And then probably my favorite thing, and I'm saying this as I'm sitting in a hotel room getting ready to do depositions of a defendant doctor in his office tomorrow. So I'm 
breaking that rule, but, um, but is that you can spread out all the documents in your own office and just have them where you want them. And it's, it's just so much quicker and easier to, to move through things than when you're sitting in the, in the, um, uh, same conference room with the defendant. So, um, so I, I actually, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, uh, the video uh, depositions and, and, uh, zoom depositions can go very nicely. The only thing I would say is that they, you do have to get yourself prepared ahead of time. Because, yeah. Yeah. And I think the only depositions that Ron took in person were the investigating officer right before trial and the, the, the paving company's doctor in West Virginia. I think every other depot he took was, or that I took was Zoom. And so from January, if you take out the records deposition, it was like June of 19 before the, the, the transportation cabinet got brought into the case. So take that one out from January, February of 2020 until June of 2021. We took 30 depositions. Yeah. Wow. And then how did you, so, I mean, so this happened January 9 of 2019 and you're trying it by July of 2021, which even without a pandemic is pretty fast. So how were you able to get on the trial calendar so quickly? Because, you know, here, I'll just, here in Georgia, not only do we have cases that are older than ours that the courts will want to move along before ours, unless we get a special setting, but they also, we have the criminal dockets that are, um, that they're putting ahead of the civil dockets. So, um, so that's kind of pushing everything back. So how were you able to get this case to trial? I mean, I guess by July, 2021, and, you know, I guess what kind of, uh, things did you have to do with regard to COVID at trial? So we, we asked for a trial date very early and we were, you know, you know, I do a lot of cases in federal court and uh, sort of contrary to the normal plaintiff, I like federal court because I love having that schedule, you know, and I like having deadlines and know what my trial date is. And in, in state court, it's so variable. And we have a lot of judges here in Kentucky who will not give you a trial date until the case is finished and you've already mediated even. Uh, but this judge doesn't do that. He kind of does the federal style where he'll give you a trial date and then he has an automatic uh, pre-trial deadline order that backs up from that trial date. So, you know, we we done, you know, we know how the defense lawyers are, where whatever you ask for, they're going to say, oh, judge, my trial calendar is full. And they're, so I just went really early and asked for the trial date. And so I believe I asked for it in the summer of 2020, um, you know, at that point, we had, I think we'd taken like the records custodian deposition was it. Uh, but my pitch to the judge was I can try this case in five days. This is not a complex case. Uh, it turned out to be more complex than we thought, but uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a pharma case or something. So, uh, and so the defense lawyer, you know, complained and whined and the judge said it a year out. So I leave the courtroom kind of upset, but ultimately that was the perfect amount of time. So that put us on the clock and we had one year now to get the case ready for trial and then to answer your question about, you know, older cases being on the docket, there was a, a, a more senior case that had the same trial date as ours. Um, and I still to this day do not know why, because we were at court uh, for the final pretrial conference and that lawyer was there too. And he said, really sorry, but we're, we're the older case than you. So you're not going to go to trial. Uh, we are. And then he got up and the judge said, uh, you're not going to trial. They are. And I still, I will never know why. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we, ours was a 2019 filed case and theirs was a, 
like 2017. I mean, yeah. it was it it was a, a decent amount older. Um, to answer the criminal docket stuff, yes, that that is a concern, especially in some courts. But what our judge, our two judges in Boone County, our circuit judges, um, what they do and what our particular judge um, has in place is, um, and, and he'll he will edit as needed but his standard order is there's one week that he has set aside for criminal trials right another week for civil trials and then the alternating weeks is his regular motion docket like on tuesdays is his docket and it's he hears that i mean it's 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 on the civil docket and you know foreclosure and all that type of stuff um so he he tries to keep now if you have a you know a big capital murder case or something right or you have a complex case and if you set it that's what happened in our case it is you know he set for five days all the defense objected to was for the trial date and the judge overruled it and as ron said pick the trial as we got closer to trial they kept they they moved two or three times to continue it and kept saying this we need this is a two three week trial and at the final pre-trial maybe jumping ahead but the final pre-trial the judge goes he pulled up his he goes guys when this was said, I wrote down five days. Someone told me five days. It was wrong, you know. And so, no. And the defense says, "Well, we objected to the trial." He goes, "Yeah, and you and you and you, I overruled it, but you didn't object to five days. You right. get five days to try this case." Mm-hmm. And Ron stood up pre-trial, a month before trial, and goes, "No problem, judge. We can do it." And defense yeah. is like, "We can't. Tr- we can't. Tr- There's some. We can't try this in five days." Yeah. And judge looked at Ron and said, "You all can get your proof on half the time." Ron said, "Yep." And we left the courthouse going, okay, now we got to. Yeah, we, 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 we were lying at that point. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because at, at that point, the KYTC was still a party in the case. Uh, the claims for the estate were still in the case with another lawyer. And uh, we, we also had um, Darren Carroll, the driver, who was we had to name as a defendant. And he was still actively in the case with his own lawyer. So we're, we're looking at like five lawyers for every direct and cross. So five days was never going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, right. fortunately. For the record, we, we weren't lying to the court, but you yeah, right. <laughs> we were, you were, we were being very uh, optimistic. How about right, that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we just, <laughs> as most good plaintiff lawyers are, we're, we're always uh, ambitious and optimistic in how we can try our cases. Right. I, I, I do want to get into I, I, I do one, one thing. Yeah. Get to it. I want to talk about layer because what Ron just said, I, I want one of the best things we did besides what we did during COVID as we get closer and you all talk about trial strategy, how we strategize to put this case on in really two days of proof i mean that was also we think the 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 beauty of of why we got the result we did because of how we tried it obviously we'll get to that i'm sure at some point in your questions but i don't want that to be lost well it it is i mean i i want there's there's actually a lot there that i do want to talk about and i want to talk about some of the procedural aspects but you know, one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading Ron's opening and he and, and Ron, you mentioned it, which was, all right, you've and we, we haven't we've, we've sort of held this off. But uh, Mr. Uh, Carroll had methamphetamine in his system. He's driving a flatbed uh, truck. I mean, so you have this flatbed truck goes off the road, you know, comes back onto the road. Maybe he overcorrects. Maybe he loses control, whatever. But then he causes it. Um, you know, 
on the one hand, especially when that case first comes into the office, I'm wondering if you're looking at this as well, this is more of like a, a trucking type claim, you know, he loses control, he's the one at fault. And then not only did you not really pursue, well, you didn't pursue that claim at the end of the day, uh, you, you basically defended him at the end of the day. Uh, and, and really polarize the jury into this, it's either Eaton or it's Mr. Mr. Carroll. And, you know, and you showed why it wasn't Mr. Carroll. Um, but that, that's a pretty gutsy call, um, to say, you know, to say, you know, we're going to go after one or the other, and, and we think you need to put everything on Eaton, which is what you ended up doing. And then I guess I, I want to kind of tie into this and I'm, and this is opening up a lot is I, I was wondering what happened with the, um, I, I'll keep wanting to say the DOT, but the Kentucky um, uh, Transportation Cabinet, I think is is what you call it, the KYTC. What happened yes. with the claims uh, against them? So the KYTC claims were dismissed on summary judgment. Uh, in Kentucky, um, they have immunity for all acts um, that are discretionary and uh, that you can maintain a cause of action against them for acts that are ministerial, but then done negligently. Um, and so we knew that the KYTC was a real, was KYTC for us was a bigger fear than the guy on meth driving the truck, which people have a hard time believing, but um People like to, you know, it's like I do pharma cases and people want to blame the FDA. Um, you know, why didn't, why did the FDA approve the drug if it's so dangerous? Why did the KYTC approve this road if it was not done right? So, uh, you know, we worked uh, to really get the KYTC out. We supported their motion for summary judgment, even though we had named them. And that's because in Kentucky, if there's an adjudication on the merits then there is not supposed to be apportionment and there was not an apportionment instruction in this case to the KYTC, which again, scared us more than the drive, than the, the driver on meth. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to say it's routine to get the KYTC out on immunity in these cases, but it's as close, it's close to it. I mean, I think most of the judges around the state know that they generally get out on immunity and Eaton did never. Eaton had never filed a cross claim against the KYTC, uh, so they didn't have an expert to be critical of the KYTC. And we took the one that we had, and basically jettisoned his opinions that were negative to the KYTC. So when it came down for summary judgment, there simply wasn't any evidence in the record that anything that they had done that was ministerial was done negligently. Okay. Uh, and so they got out on SJ and then by that, there was no apportionment to them, which, you know, we're going to talk a lot in this about how our success in this trial was not really what we did in those five days, but what we did in the two years leading up to them. I mean, we were really playing chess uh, in this with all of our strategizing and how we got the case to where it was. But the decision that we made on how to deal with the KYTC was one of the best ones we made and we executed it flawlessly. I mean, not through any skill of ours, really, but just things fell into place. Well, and, and the concern was, you know, trial was July 6th and on um, June 29th, I believe, is when the judge issued the order granting the KYTC summary judgment. So, I mean, less than a week before trial, the concern we had 
we had two concerns. One was what Ron just laid out. If they're in trial, if they're in the apportionment scheme, that was concern one. But concern two was under Kentucky law, if the judge had denied the summary judgment motion on qualified immunity, the state has an automatic immediate right of appeal and All they right. were going to appeal and we would have lost our trial date. And we, would, and we would have lost it for a, a year minimum. Right. And so that was our other fear of we had we had based on the chess we played and the strategy and and, and you know, we everyone preps for trial at some point. We, we really prep for trial a year out. We did our heavy prep three, four months out. But every move we made was decisive and was intentional. But the we had no control over the summary judgment. And if it was denied all that work we did, all that strategizing would have just gone out the window and we, we'd still be in the court of appeals. Wow. Yeah. So, and then with regard to the other driver, um, you know, cause one of the things that we didn't mention that is that uh, Mr. Carroll, I think was actually facing some criminal charges and not indictment for wanton murder. Right. Wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so not only, you know, at, at, by the time you got this case to trial, were you essentially, you know, uh, not putting any blame on him and, and showing why this wasn't his fault, but, but you guys even took the step, if I understand correctly, of going to the DA showing your evidence and showing why there shouldn't be criminal charges against, uh, against Mr. Carroll. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, that's a needle you have to thread very carefully. And, you know, early on in my career, uh, I, I was a criminal defense lawyer and, you know, I had cases where, um, you know, my client had allegedly caused harm to somebody and there was a plaintiff's lawyer involved and maybe they needed um, my guy to plead to something that wasn't intentional. So there wasn't an exclusion in their policy of homeowners or something so they could get recovery. And I had been down that path several times and I really had seen and my wife is a prosecutor. So I, I, you know, I know what makes the prosecutor mad and, and what they find, you know, to be acceptable in terms of us intervening into their world. And so what Jay and I did was we didn't, we didn't ask for any favors. We didn't tell anybody what to do. We just said, Hey, I know that you've got this case and you're operating under one set of, of assumptions. Um, that's, but it's based on only what your what your investigating officer did at the accident reconstruction. You know, the day after the accident. Here are some depositions you may want to read because it's a lot of stuff that you don't know about, and the criminal defense lawyer for this guy does know about them. Um, and so, you know, if you have any questions or if this changes your mind about anything, uh, let me know. And they read those depositions and got back with us, and they were like, "Wow." Uh, you know, it looks like the road edge had a lot more to do with this than the fact that he was, you know, on meth and, and, and their own toxicologist had said the meth level was in kind of the inconclusive range, which, you know, they have beyond the reasonable doubt burden of proof. So at that point, you know, they were like, the prosecutor is a, was a very smart guy who understands prosecutorial discretion. And basically at that point, he's like, look at the family thinks that this is the asphalt company's fault and that's where their justice lies, then, you know, we don't want to pursue a criminal prosecution that we're going to lose on. Uh, so, you know, they ultimately, with the family's blessing, dismissed the criminal case uh, against Darren Carroll, which again, another one of these things that, you know, we 
talked about and planned and strategized over and achieved before trial that had he been under still under criminal indictment up there taking the fifth, uh, you know, there's no way there wouldn't have been massive apportionment of fault to him. Right. So and one more thing it, we did got right somehow. Yeah. And a couple things on that. First, Darren Carroll, um, uh, it was an older truck. It was like a 2003 Chevy. Um, he had no insurance. So, you know, he was going to help his buddy uh, that owned the company do some side concrete work. So there was no insurance on the truck. Um, uh, and we'll get to that in a second on the investigation. But, you know, we knew that if if we could have just contacted the criminal defense lawyer and said, hey, here's all this stuff, but he didn't have to turn it over to the prosecutor. You know, he can keep that for cross. We knew if we got to the prosecutor, it'd be exculpatory. He'd have to send it to the defense. And we thought that was the above board way to do it anyway. Let, we don't want the prosecutor to think we're somehow trying to, you know, to, 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 you know, bomb his case to help us. We just said, hey, this is out there you may not be aware of it just read it and we didn't we didn't do summaries we didn't put our spin we just said here's some depositions we think you should read these and that's really all we did and then had some calls and then they talked to the family the prosecutor without us and you know and it was and the prosecutor got to the conclusion that ron said and it wasn't just dismissed but the judge dismissed it with prejudice so all criminal charges out um, which included speeding which included distracted driving, texting, and we can get to the motions and limiting on that stuff. But I mean, all those things were knocked down that were initial conclusions from the first reconstruction report. And it, it was helpful that the police officer in this case wasn't just an investigating officer, but he's, you know, he's an accident reconstructionist for, for Boone County, he does a really good job to the point of our reconstructionist um, agreed with pretty much everything their reconstructionist did when he, you know, remapped and diagrammed the scene and did the total station and did the markings he got pretty much all of it right so i mean the guy knew what he was doing um you know um and, and something you had mentioned earlier how did we look at this because ron i've had this discussion a lot how many lawyers would have gotten this police report that saw speeding texting crystal meth <laughs> right, right. woman woman died and then said well, if the guy doesn't have insurance, let's just collect the uninsured motorist money. I mean, that that 95% or more, I think, would have gone that route because the police report didn't say anything about the road. So the question is, how did we get into that? So Ron, you know, Ron got the case in the office. Ron got the case signed up. Um, and the media is like, hey, you know, can you get can you get Joey Stidham and go to the scene? So Joey and I met at the scene. And um, something that I'll show you this because, I, you know, I know that there's a recorded podcast. But I want you all to see this is what I saw um, mid-February of 2019. So six weeks after the crash is when this happened. Um, so we're at the scene and you just see this aerial photo taken by my reconstructionist drone. And it doesn't look like much. Right. And, and, you, and down here where I do the X. The, the, the guy went off the road somewhere around there, okay? And he goes off, and he's going this direction. So the crash is outside the view of this picture. Um, the, the importance of this picture is when you look in the top, um, uh, those aren't clearing. Hold on a second. Let me fix this. When you look up here in the top, do you see that truck in the ditch? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. And do you see the police SUV in the driveway? Yeah. Okay. Do you see in the far left, do you see the flatbed tow truck? Yeah. Okay. Right before that tow truck was there, that's where we were parked. And this porta potty truck had just gone off the road, 
dropped off the edge and took out the culvert. His wheels were completely turned under. And we pull up at the scene. The police are there. And Joey and I just walk over. And Joey gets his card out, hands one to the cop. And says, I'm investigating you know, the fatality that happened a couple weeks ago. And he goes up to the driver report bar and says, what happened? He said, I'm driving down the road. And my, my tire drops off. And I couldn't get back on, and boom, big crash. He had to be towed out. So six weeks after our crash, just by happenstance, the one day we pick, there was another similar incident on the opposite side of the road. And when the jury saw this photo at trial, you can imagine. I mean, one juror actually said out loud, oh, my God. Like, she covered her mouth and said, oh, my God. Um, but, I mean, that, so, you know, just by – I'm a big, big proponent. In most of my cases are truck crashes. Right. I'm a big proponent of the moment I get in the case, go to the scene. I go to the vehicle inspections myself. I'm, I give a talk here in a, in a month in, in Austin, Texas about that. But I bring I have a truck crash kit. And I go and I get under the trucks. I get dirty. I look because you can't replace that evidence once you see it. At that scene, when we were walking the side of the road, my 10-year-old daughter would have been able to say, this is bad because all the asphalt where, in our, where our crash happened was crumbled and was high. And you could tell it was all fresh. And it just didn't look right. So the scene inspection, you know, when I came back, I might even called Ron from the car. I can't remember. Um, that's when we knew, okay, th it's this road. This road has a major, major role. We didn't know at that point what we would uncover in deposition. But right. that, that scene inspection started the process of seeing how bad this was. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. For people who can't see it, I mean, it looks like a lot of the sort of busier two-lane country roads that you might have in your town in terms of, you know, you've got the lines on it. 
and it's paved, but there's almost no shoulder to speak of. So what's happening with the asphalt is really important. You've basically got it where it kind of drops off and you've sort of got those, um, you know, ditches on either side of the road. So for, for people who can't see it and we can post the picture, we can share the picture somehow on, um, on social media or something. So folks can see it. Um, but just, if you don't know what to picture, there's not, there's not like there's a big shoulder there for you to just pull off on or be stuck. You're basically dropping off after that, unless you try to get back on the road, which puts you in a, in a different predicament. And what were you going to say, Steve? Sorry. I, I was just going to say that, you know, we hadn't really, uh, we, we hadn't really, uh, talked about why a steep road edge drop off is so dangerous. I mean, some people might just think, well, what's the big deal? A road's a little bit high, you get off into the grass, you know, you stop or something like that. Can you all just talk about I mean, there's, there's, you know, federal standards on this, there's ASHTO standards on this, but can you just talk about why, uh, when a, a road is high, and there's no shoulder, and it just drops off why that can be such a danger and why it can cause something like what it what happened here? Yeah, so I mean, it's, uh, we, we actually had a model instead of, we had an animation made for this case and we never even used it. And you don't want to know how much money we spent on that. <laughs> I, I've been there. I, I've, I've spent money on demonstratives and then just never pulled them out. Right. But we had a, a model made uh, and that worked out great. And I used it during opening because exactly, I had to explain, I had to teach that to the, I, I needed the jury to understand why something that may seem so innocuous is actually so deadly right out of the gate. So we used our model and just demonstrated how when the side, when you drop off and it's a vertical face, even if it's two inches, three inches, yeah, that, this was our model. And that's what, that was what it should have looked like with the safety wedge tapering it, the edge down. Right. So the, what you see there is the old, the gray styrofoam is the original road. The black was what they put on top. And what they were supposed to do was that wedge and they didn't. But the side of the tire essentially locks over that vertical face. And the person usually panics because it's natural to do so. You've gone off the road uh, and they pull very, they have to pull really hard to get it to remount that edge. Well, if they're going 40 or 50 miles an hour, when they do clear the edge, they're now putting as much pressure on the steering wheel as they can so the tires immediately flip to the left and they're going 50 miles an hour. They go directly into oncoming traffic if they're really unlucky and they hit a car and kill somebody or themselves. And then if they're somewhat lucky, there's nobody there, but they do go across the road onto the other side and something bad can happen. So, you know, we had a, a, an expert who was going to testify at trial, but for some reason, the defense agreed to <laughs> stipulate to his opinions and allow the judge to read them in. That you know, two inch drop was dangerous, was hazardous, and that anything four inches or more was ultra hazardous. Wow. So we we had places. Jay, what was the highest point on our road edge? Definitely more than four inches. Here's the. I mean, this was the golden closing, but the this was eight eight oh inches, and, and that's where he tried to get. But that's about where he tried to get back on. And the asphalt crumbled. So, I mean, Ron, have, me having this on a screen and Ron talking and closing and opening about this, but this was two of our best pictures. There's one other that shows the road before, um, but eight inches. And that's about the area where he tried to get back on, but he couldn't because the vertical face was way too high. 
That's that is amazing that any road uh, engineer or road company could look at that and think that that's a safe design. And I think Ron said in closing, you have the transcript when he said you heard, you know, the judge said anything over four inches is ultra hazardous. I don't know what you call eight inches. I forgot what you said, ultra, ultra, or double ultra hazardous. But Ron's like, oh, no, there's a word for that. I think he said something like that in closing. It was awesome. I mean, yeah, it's crazy looking. I mean, for it's it's got that sort of like crumbled Oreo look on the edges. Like it looks totally um, unfinished, super sloppy. Um, and, you know, you all were able to uncover or at least paint the picture for the jury that that's a lot of what was going on, that basically they got the contract for this job and had a certain amount of time to do the work in, had other jobs that they work on that uh, were bigger, that make more money um, at the same time the asphalt company does, at the same time that they've got this contract. And so basically they've got the six months to start on the contract. They don't do anything for a while. And the work doesn't um, really start to get done until the weather becomes an issue because you can't do this kind of work below 40 degrees. So then now they're running up towards the end of the contract, after which there's going to be financial penalties for that. They're they're basically it looks like it looks like a very sort of uh, rushed last minute job. But talk a little bit about what you guys learned in terms of how the time and money factored into or at least the picture you were able to paint for the jury factored into the kind of um, job that was done here. Well, yeah, I mean, I think from a career full of losing medical malpractice trials, I've become a firm believer that you have to prove motive or the why, why did this happen, not how did it happen. You know, and you can go to trial against a doctor who mis misread an x-ray and you're going to lose that trial all, you know, every time. But if you go to trial against the doctor who misread an x-ray and you prove that the hospital had cut the number of radiologists back in order to save money and that they were having to read films, you know, 12 hours a day and they were exhausted, you win. Uh, and here, it, it, this could not be, and it wasn't, I mean, it, you know, but it, this was not a winner if it was just, um, you know, something, it, it, it wasn't done ideally, you know, because there's probably lots of roads that aren't done perfectly. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is not artwork. This is just throwing asphalt on the ground. But we had to show the why and the why made it all make sense. Um, and once we could demonstrate the why, why did this happen? Um, not only did that help explain that the road was the, 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 the reason why, it also made it much less likely for them to want to point the finger or for the jury to want to blame the KYTC or the driver of the other vehicle. Because now you had someone who did something wrong and the jury understood why they did it wrong, which was missing with everybody else. Uh, so like you said, we, we dug into the, to the discovery and just immediately figured out what happened, which is this is a company that gets seven, eight, nine, ten million dollar projects from the state to build highway interchanges and all these things. And this was a hundred and eighty thousand dollar project. They should not have even bid on this. This was such a small thing. And they just shelved it. 
And they did all their million dollar stuff all summer long and did nothing. And so we had a great demonstrative of a calendar that had every month that they had the project and we had a red X through every day that they didn't do anything. Uh, and so then make so more- wait, wait, hold on. This is so awesome. We have to be able to share this video so that you could see this calendar that's basically six months and every day is almost every day is covered with a red X. It's yeah, so exactly. good. It looks like they did four days of total work. Is that right? Right. And, and yeah. three and three of them were so that you see the deadline on November, but really they had to finish by the by the night when they finished because the weather on the 10th, it was all below 40 degrees. And we had another demonstrative that, that showed. I mean, we use so many boards in this case. These were all boards. These weren't slides. Um, and a lot of the time in the courtroom, what I was doing the most was picking up and putting down boards. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, but they really worked so well. And um, and so this this concept that they ignored the little project that they were going to make no money on uh, in favor of the big projects that they were going to make money on. Now the jury understood why. And that helped everything make sense. And, and I, I've, you know, after trying cases for 20 plus years, I've just now you know understood that it's not it's not enough to prove the elements in your of the causes of action in your complaint. These are regular people who don't understand that. You know, these are these jurors, they need to understand the whole picture and it needs to make sense to them. And, and so that that's what I think we we're able to do with with that part of the proof. And you know, it, it's something that um, you know, on the we decided we didn't want the entire trial presentation to be on a screen through a projector. Um, we wanted, obviously Ron had the idea for the model, want something physical. Um, we actually had a whole model, a replica made of the tire of Darren Carroll's truck with an axle. We never used it. It sat in the courtroom in the corner. We just didn't, you know, cause, but, um, because of, we can, we'll get into it. Ron can tell you what, what we, we, a pivot we made in trial, why we didn't need to use it. But, um, we decided we wanted boards, physical boards. And he had an experience when he tried a couple of the, bellwether uh, cases in mdl in chicago on testosterone uh, of some of these boards and timelines so all the boards we had made they were all dry erase they were all magnetized um and then the timeline board was 10 feet two boards hinged but all these boards we we made um we took we didn't in in up not using them all but we we, we used most of the boards, but we also made up, and this was a, a great concept that he and I came up with, where we took from the video depots, we took, I screenshotted every deponent's, main deponent's face for the paving company. And we, we then had the printer turn it into like a three inch by three inch or four inch by four inch magnetized um, or, or magnet. So, since he, so Ron could put the person's face up or put uh, or and we had boards where he could check mark or put their initials and so he's actively doing that and the jurors were just i mean you know when he's up there got the witnesses off the stand going through six boards of facts and they're saying yes yes and he's i mean the jurors are just i mean so focused on that um we we thought the boards because the, the boards told our whole trial pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. we, we cross-examined witnesses with boards that were already finished. I mean, we, obviously we took them from depots so we we could back them up with impeachment. We never had to impeach a single witness with a depot. I've never had that happen because <laughs> we had the boards there. 
And they just, they knew what they had said in their depot. And I'd have them come get off the stand, walk down to the easel where I had the board. And I'd say, this is a rule. This is a rule. This is a rule. Isn't it true? This is a rule. Yes, 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 yes. And you broke this rule and you broke this rule. And I mean, you know, there was, they had nowhere to run. And the jury's not just hearing that um, and trying to remember things they're hearing because, you know, we're all better visually. They're seeing the witness agree to it in writing on something that I'm not writing on a, on, on a, on a pad up there. This is clearly, they, the jurors are saying we came to court with, mm-hmm. you know, that must be real. And, right. and it's already printed. And the and that witness that the, the the vice president of the company came down and agreed with everything on that board, and then like Jay said, I mean, you know, some days at the end of the day when we were getting ready for this case, he'd come in my office and we would just sit around and literally think of what's the wackiest thing we can do next. <laughs> That's when we're like, I was like, yeah, because in one trial I put their initials next to everything they did, and then we're like, no, let's put their face on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had face magnets made, you know. Uh, it, but it was, but but the boards, I mean, we had the boards had to be at the printer by, um, it was two or three weeks before trial. Right. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. That, that's, I feel like a lot of the problem you run into when you want boards is, is the, when you come up with them and whatever we, the time constraints are. We started our board prep in, I want to say April, um, might've been early May. And um, we met with our person mainly by Zoom. We did one in person, realized we can do it all by Zoom. And I mean, to the point of there, there's an app I like to use, but it's, a, it's only on iPad, it's called WordFlex, but it's a living, breathing thesaurus. It's iPad only. And we had that out trying to find the right word. Like on that calendar you saw, it had that eaten, initially we kept, we kept saying, I said disregard, and Ron said, no, I, we need a better word. They, disregard, it's close, but it's too pat. We need something better. So I put disregard in WordFlex, and next thing that pops up was ignore, and Ron's, he immediately was like, that's the word. Yeah. So we would come up, he would do a draft of a board of the wording, and then I would look at it and then tweak it, shorten it. He and I would meet and then spend more time on just one or two boards wordsmithing getting it as concise as possible as simple juror language non-lawyer language and then what emblem what picture what what color and then our illustrator then was able to take it run with it and we had a consistent theme of colors and red bad you know that type of stuff um but i couldn't tell me sessions how many hours we had just on the boards but it, it was the whole focal point of our trial. And even if we didn't know what we want to do with a witness, <laughs> I could just pull a board up and let's go through these. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's huge. I mean, it's huge because you've got the, you know, having the physical boards is, a, is, is very different than screens and screen fatigue. So, you know, people are visual learners, but especially now, probably with COVID people just kind of zone out with screens. So how smart to have that much concrete stuff. Um, Steve, I know I did it to you again. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to ask. I mean, do it. Demonstratives is one of my favorite part of uh, trial. Just, you know, trying to be creative and how you're going to make your point. But um, I have actually uh, I, I was actually just wondering for those boards to make them both dry erase and magnetize. How much uh, cost does that add per board from a trial standpoint? It's well, sickening how cheap it was. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> we. So, yeah, we kind of went to the usual suspects early on about getting boards made. And just so everybody knows, 
you're getting ripped off by those people because um, now we know how much it really costs to make a board. So I have a client from a car wreck case who is a graphic designer and she can use the Adobe Illustrator program, which is essentially what you need to do to make boards. I learned that from being out with Rodney Jew once on a case. And, um, and so we called her and said, you know, she has a full-time graphic design job for a big corporation. And I said, you know, you, would you be interested in making some extra money working after work a few days a week and maybe a couple Saturdays? And she said, sure. And we told her what it would be and she was excited. And I think she had fun. She charged us a very fair rate. I mean, that's, you know, commensurate with what her professional time is worth. And she's, you know, skilled and in probably in her early fifties. Uh, and then she found the printer that she uses for her big corporation when they have big projects done. And then she told us how much it was going to cost. Jay, I don't remember. Do you, it, it was yeah, so I got, I got it right. I have the I have the invoice right here. It was the, so much cheaper than like the, people who do this for us. The yeah. invoice, the invoice from the printer, um, which was uh, let's see how many boards were they? Um, one, two, three, four. The invoice from the printer turned out to be around. 1200 bucks give or for take how many wow for how and many boards 1920 oh. <laughs> and then I, our, I have paid 300 dollars for a board before exactly mm -hmm. oh yeah and then um for um our um for our illustrator uh and her charge um i got the invoice here it was actually i mean it was uh uh it was pretty low um oh wait i was in the wrong section um trial boards here we go so her uh invoice was uh $1,338 so, we, so we got we got we got her we got her and the boards for let's call it maybe let's call it three grand give or take we had one board we I mean, had basically you were your your total cost is about a hundred bucks a board which is absurdly low yeah that's that's fantastic yeah. we spent more than three grand on the animation <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But um, but no, and and so it it just I think what some takeaways from people is find someone local who works for you know find out you know who works for find them on LinkedIn or something or who works for a hospital or a big company or a nonprofit that does their graphic design and you know you spend some time with them. It's not like the boards I showed you or like some trade secret. I mean, it's a calendar with red X's. Right. It's but. The, the people that do these things are in touch with the local printers and she shopped the printers and got quotes from all three and says, I like this one the best. Um, and they can fit your timeline. Um, and, you know, so that's all I got to do is find someone local who does graphic design, someone in, in graphic design school, at college or marketing school or something. I mean, just that knows how to do that. I'm, I'm tech savvy. I can't do those illustrator programs. That's beyond my, my capability. Well, Ivana, I'll just let you know that, you know, my oldest daughter is in college right now for graphic design. So we're going to put her to work as soon as she gets yeah, done. There you Steve. go. <laughs> there plant, you go. That, plant that seed, Steve. That's right. Um, <laughs> so we didn't talk about, we talked a lot about COVID, but so I'm, it sounds like you all had, you tried this in July. It sounds like, did, did you know, you have all these boards. So did you have an in-person jury? Was everybody in the courtroom? Did you have plexiglass up or max masks or what, what, what was the deal? We got Another time that we just rather, you know, rather be lucky than good. We hit that window yeah. before Delta came back and everybody thought COVID was gone. That's right. And it was no masks, 
no questionnaires, nobody got tested, no vaccine. We're all vaccinated. I don't know if our jury was, frankly, given sort of the political view of people in Boone County, I would imagine several were not. Right. But um, it was, we did it. They were in their, in the normal jury box, no social distancing. They were sitting next to each other. We were, I was right up in witnesses' faces, you know, and and we just got so lucky. Yeah. Literally a couple of weeks later, the brakes got slammed on and everything was closed down again. Um, you know, somebody was looking out for us. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, we, there were a couple jurors that started with masks in the, it, during Vordire. One got on the jury, wore a mask a little bit and then, then eventually took it off. Um, but, you know, Ron, I debated this and, um, you know, I, I, I made a, since, since I did jury selection, I just kind of went, made a gut, a gut decision, and I chose not to vordire on COVID. I initially had some stuff built in. Uh, Ron, Ron's tied in with some just fantastic trial lawyers that do stuff nationally that had good success when they did cover COVID. But for some reason, my gut says I don't want to get into it. Um, right or wrong, I, I just chose not to question. And the judge didn't have any COVID questions for the jurors. He did a little vordire at the beginning, but very basic. But I chose not to get in that because I just I didn't want to turn get somehow it get off track there because I knew I had to talk about meth. Well, I wanted to, I definitely want to turn and talk damages for a second, but there's a couple more liability issues I want to hit is one is in, in, in almost every um, road design case that I've ever had it is a go-to defense for um, the contractor to point the finger at the the DOT, or in, in this case, the transportation cabinet by saying, well, they come out and inspect it every day and then they signed off on it. So, you know, that's it. And, and you did hit that, Ron, in your opening and closing. And I thought the way you hit it was really good. But do you want to uh, talk a little bit about how you face that defense? Because that's that is always a defense for contractors in road design cases. Right. So, you know, one of the things we talked about in this case was that they failed to put in the safety wedge. And Um, the defense was, well, they came out and inspected it and they could clearly see that there wasn't a safety wedge there um, and they okayed it. So, you know, we had to deal with that. And so what, what, again, this goes to, you have to tell why, what was the motivation? And so Jay and I made a pivot in trial. The case wasn't about that they didn't put in the safety wedge. I mean, there there was maybe a legitimate defense that you could not put a safety wedge in on this road, given the site conditions. But what we we so we made the case, you know what? Maybe you couldn't put a safety wedge here. Maybe absolutely they had a very good reason not to do it. That's not what they did wrong, folks. What they did wrong was they didn't tell the KYTC. So one of the rules we had is if you're not going to do something that's in the contract, that's fine as long as you tell the KYTC because the KYTC has to know everything. They're the ones at 35,000 feet looking at everything. And if you're going to pick or choose one part to take out, they have to know because that may make everything else crumble. So the example that we gave was the milling, the grinding down the pavement so that it doesn't get higher. That was supposed to be done in the contract, but they didn't want to do it but they asked the KYTC and they got permission not to do it. So I use that as an example of, they knew what the rules were. They knew they were supposed to tell the KYTC and get permission if they didn't do something. So why didn't they do that with the safety wedge? And so what we said was, 
they didn't want the KYTC to know they weren't putting the safety wedge in because if they did, if the KYTC found out, then they would have made them go back and mill the whole thing. Then they don't finish on time. Then they lose money. Then they get fined. You know, it went all went all back to the why. And it, so it all fit together. They already knew that why. So when I told them that, now it becomes a situation where it looks like they concealed this right. from, the, from the transportation cabinet. So when I say, yeah, the transportation cabinet said okay on the inspection, because of course that was an exhibit they used. And I said, it's because they didn't know. And, and, and the KYTC, it's an honor system. They rely on the contractor to be honest and to tell them, look, we don't think a safety wedge will work on this project. And I really went at that again and again with the jury say, and maybe it wouldn't have, and that's fine, but they had to tell them. And because they concealed it from them, the inspection says it's okay. And, and so Ron, you came up, what'd you call the KYTC during trial? You, um, they weren't the road police. Yeah, right? they weren't the, K, the KYTC is not the road police, which is something that I get from my pharma cases when I say the FDA is not the drug police. Yeah. You know, the, the FDA is not a bunch of people in SWAT gear descending into pharmaceutical companies to find out if their drug actually kills people. You know, it's an honor system and you're supposed to do clinical studies. And if you see something that looks bad, you're supposed to tell the FDA. Right. And the same thing here, if you if you think you're going to have to make the road differently than the contract requires, you have to tell the KYTC. And, you know, uh, from from our focus group work, we knew that the bigger danger to us than a driver with meth in his system was what you just said, that the jury will say, what about the KYTC? They inspected it. Um, you know, our, our we did three focus juries. They all hammered the KYTC. Um, so that was how we got around that to make yeah. it that they concealed it. It was part of their scheme. Right. And all three focus group jurors and the way we did it was and Ron had done this on his testosterone stuff and learned, um, you know, we did a layered focus group where we had individual verdict forms or questionnaires for all everyone had to do individually without discussing it. And each section or segment was new facts. And Ron just started out with crash, meth, speeding, texting, who's at fault, 100% Darren Carroll. Then he started to layer a little bit more and a little bit more. And once he got to what the, they cut corners, then they started to share the fault. Then once he said, oh, by the way, criminal charges were dismissed, all three, and then individually, um, especially collaboratively in the three deliberative groups, they all put zero on Darren Carroll. They start out with 100. They all put zero at the end. Wow. Wow. Um, go ahead, Steve. Well, I, the, the other thing that I, I did say we were going to talk about, and I just want to have you guys touch on real quick that we haven't, is so you were representing the three children of Amy Skiba, um, and I assume that she had divorced her husband, who was the father of the three children, Mr. Mr. Godwin. Um, so there was actually a separate lawsuit brought on behalf of the estate of Amy Skiba and then by her husband as well. So just, I guess, just talk about that sort of procedural uh, part of it real quick about how that was handled. You all handled one part of the case. And then I guess there was another law firm that was, that was uh, handling the uh, estate claim for, uh, for Ms. Skiba. Correct. And um, so the, the, the judge consolidated the, they were filed separately, of course. And then uh, I believe on motion of the defendant, the judge consolidated them. Uh, and we had to do the case together. Um, they settled literally, I guess, on the 
the Sunday before trial started on Tuesday. Um, and, and it was fine. You know, it, it was a, it's a lawyer who is a defense lawyer down in Lexington and uh, takes plaintiff's cases every once in a while. And he was great to work with. Um, and you know, all the depositions, you know, we took the lead and we had our theory and our exhibits, kind of how we already said. And, um, you know, he was fine with that. Um, and on experts, you know, he brought a couple experts to the table and we used some of it. And, um, you know, we had obviously our accident reconstruction and our toxicologist, um, but it worked out fine. And then with him settling, you know, again, going back to how we can get this done in five days, uh, he settled, you know, he settled the KYTC's out. These just kept removing right. lawyers from our trial uh, and, and allowing us to be quicker. Uh, so it, it all worked out, you know, uh, to have that happen that way. Did, um, did the defense try to bifurcate uh, punitive damages or is that a Kentucky thing where you just do it all at once or they're, they wanted to do it all at once? They didn't want to. Um, they were Ohio lawyers, but I think they've done enough in Kentucky to know that there's that that's a non-starter with Kentucky. It, it all there's actually losses that all must be tried together. Oh, OK. Wow. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's good and bad for doing that. But I mean, generally, you you know, with punitives uh, in the uh, first part of the case in Georgia, it's bifurcated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence you can get in that you, um, if you try it all together, then you can't, that you wouldn't be able to get in if it was bifurcated. Right. Um, well, um, well, let's talk about the damages. Uh, so essentially the, the claims that you brought here on behalf of the kids were emotional distress for essentially witnessing their mother get killed. Uh, and from what you described in your opening, it sounded like there was some photographs and the way she was killed, um, was particularly um, gruesome. Um, and, um, it, you know, and then, and then there, you have a loss of consortium claim for the loss of a parent. So to so talk a little bit about, um, you know, the damages in this case, and then how you presented those, uh, to the jury and, and got them to the point that you did. Right. So the negligent infliction of emotional distress is a cause of action in Kentucky that is rarely used. And I'll let Jay talk about that next. Um, and then, uh, you know, the loss of consortium, we all, we all understand that. We didn't use any of the groups. They, you know, they made a motion in limine to keep out the photographs, and we did not use uh, any of those. Um, we didn't put the children on the stand. We didn't have the children in the courtroom. We, Jay told them during Vordire that we would not uh, be bringing them in because we weren't going to make them relive this event. Uh, we did have them in at closing, um, but... You know, we wanted to take the high road with the jury whenever possible. And I mean, we really wanted to have that their trust and that they weren't being gamed or taken advantage of or exploited and that we weren't going to exploit these children. And I think that that gave us a lot of credibility, especially when asking for large amounts of money. Um, you know, we I, you know, I told them in closing that I, there was stuff I could have shown them and I did not. Um, and I told them that we weren't there for their sympathy. You know, we, we, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer in using the term justice. I think that um, that has a lot of uh, weight to it uh, for, for regular folks on a jury. And that's what they want to do. I think most jurors want to feel like they did what was justice when they go to a courtroom and they see a guy in a black robe or a woman in a black robe and they and lawyers, you know, that that's what they think should happen. They have an idealized version. They don't know all the stuff we do about how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. uh, but so we, we gave that to them and allowed them to be that 
And uh, uh, yeah, so I think that the the amounts, you know, we weren't real wedded to amounts and we didn't, you know, on, on in Kentucky, generally on the jury verdict form, you know, you have the not to exceed and you have the numbers there and plaintiff's lawyers love that because they think it might be an anchor to get a bigger number. We didn't put those on ours. I wasn't exactly sure what I was even going to ask for um, going in, you know, like the night before closing. I kind of batted it around with Jay about, well, maybe I'll just give them some ranges. And, and that's what I did. And uh, they came in within my ranges. Um, you know, I, I think that it was, uh, somebody told me once a long time ago that a juror would, eat, and I don't know if this would work with children, but I think it did, that a juror is more willing to give money to someone for what they've been through when they hear somebody else talk about what it did to them rather than hearing them talk about themselves. Yeah. And, and I think this, having this dad on the stand, who's a big, you know, tough looking guy, you know, talking in a whisper and getting choked up about what his kids have gone through and having the psychologist on the stand describe, you know, the things that they had told her in session, um, clearly, clearly, you know, worked. Yeah. Jay, why don't you mention what you know about the negligent infliction? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it kind of comes to that because, because, you know, same thing. I mean, I I do, you know, a a lot of brain injury cases and and I'm an officer in the AHA TBI group. And, and the way we prove the cases is we want someone other than the client talking about the deficits, Um, you know, and here and Ron, you mentioned um, Yvonne early on in the intro about Ron's, seven plus million dollar verdict on the product defect case is is a cochlear implant plant verdict for a kid. And part of the reason he got the verdict is how the defense tried to exploit the kid at trial. And, and um, so, you know, Ron had experience with that and said, we're not going to put them on. We're not going to go there. Um, We we can get this through other people. And we had reached out and um, interviewed Ron interviewed two of the eyewitnesses who called 911. One of them, she happened to be um, what's called a SANE nurse, a sexual assault nurse examiner. So she testifies in court all the time. And she happened to be on her way to work and got there and saw the kids, you know, the twins that were 12 at the time, they were in the car. And she got to them pretty quickly and got them away because she she knew their that their mother was was you know possibly deceased at that point. Got them away from the car, put them in her car. They had glass on them. She even testified like I remember when I get home and they're so I had glass in my car for a couple of days from that were just in their hair. Um, and, and so Ron put her on as our second to last witness, and then he put on the psychologist. Um, but you know, there's another witness who called nine one and and he gave some testimony about that. And, you know, it was actually the, the 12 year old son um, act after the crash, got into his mom's purse, got her cell phone, called their brother who was 17 at the time. And he got to the scene before the police. So, you know, the, the one brother called the older brother and he gets there. And um, so, you know, Kentucky um, back in about 2011, I believe it was adopted negligent basically did away with the impact where we used to have physical contact or impact. Yeah. Um, otherwise you couldn't make a claim. And they adopted uh, this uh, rule called Campton out Tennessee that basically says, um, you know, is that as long as there's testimony, expert testimony of severe emotional distress, then that's enough to make a claim for negligent infliction, emotional distress. So and it kind of did away with the whole zone of danger rule anyway. Mm-hmm. Just, hey, if, if you if, if, if there's severe emotional stress, well, the jury instruction talks about um, significant treatment or, you know, significantly affects their everyday life. 
and um, and that was the instruction the court gave. And the def- and the kids only went to counseling a few times, a handful each. This wasn't a case where they needed counseling. It was apparent when Ron and I worked this case up that that if there's ever a case for negligent infliction, it, it's this one. It, it's mm-hmm. you don't need treatment to for jurors to understand it. Um, so that's how it was presented. We said, we're not putting them on the stand. You know, he, they went through something that's unimaginable, losing your parents bad enough, but now witnessing it being there even worse. Um, and, you know, and, and Ron got the data to talk about how it's impacted their lives. Um, you know, they, the twins were um, 15 or about turned 15 when, when trial happened. The oldest son um, uh, had just turned 20, was about to turn 20. And because he was almost 18 when the crash happened, that was one of the arguments that Ron, I'll let Ron address. He was six months from turning 18, which was something the defense focused on, which was a mistake. But um, they, they actually, the after Ron, the dad gave just this, you know, just gut-wrenching, genuine testimony about his kids. Um, you know, the defense lawyer is doing the cross-examination covering the well, you know, they went back to school. Their grades didn't drop. Um, you know, they're, you know, and said, you know, they're, they're still, they're still doing stuff with their friends, and they're still, they're still going to dances and, and after-school activities. And the dad says, "Yes," and he paused. He goes, "But without their mother." And I heard a juror go, "Oh," but the defense was like, "Well, they've moved off their lives. This isn't a big deal." What? And the dad's, and that's what. So in closing, if you've read or watched Ron's closing, I mean, that's something he focused on based on what they did in closing, trying to blame the kids for not testifying. Oh, my God. I, I mean, talk about a uh, huge trial mistake. But, yeah, Ron, you want to talk about how you handled that and uh, what they were talking about, the uh, almost 18-year-old son? Well, you know, I just I, I just – pointed out sort of in a common sense way how ludicrous the idea was that somehow he suffers less than the other two because he was going to turn 18 in six months. Uh, and so they gave him the same amount, you know, for each one, um, which in their motion for a new trial, they have raised as, you know, a, a, an error that, that clearly they didn't do it right if they gave all the kids the same amount because they were, they were different ages. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just, I just spoke to the, the jurors on that point in a way that, you know, was sort of along the lines of, Come, you know, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, like I have kids, you all have kids on this jury or have, you know, grandkids now or whatever. Uh, and this idea that, you know, this period of time means it's worth more. I, I just threw that out the window um, and just talked about, you know, what it means to not, to not have a parent and, you know, uh, for especially you know for in this way but yeah I, I, I like i said i mean we we didn't want to put them on and one of the things that i said you know is uh the, the defense counsel went on and on about how you're you can't use your sympathy and, and i just i mean i got pretty heated and just said they don't want your sympathy you know we're not here for sympathy i said they have symp- they got more symphony sympathy sympathy than they know what to do with right they got sympathy from their aunts and their uncles and their friends and their dad and they've had sympathy for two years and i said we're not here for sympathy we're here for justice that's what you get in the courtroom not sympathy yeah and the jurors were nodding and with me so you know that that resonated uh and 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 then it made the defense lawyer's argument look stupid so you know yeah and for the listeners the importance of the 18 in kentucky 
adult children don't have a claim for loss consortium. It ends okay. at age 18. So they were trying to argue that since the twins are 12, they get six years of consortium. But since the oldest son was 17 and a half, he only gets six months. So his consortium isn't as, isn't as bad as, as his younger siblings, which, of course, we about fell over when he said that. But yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I don't know if you had a chance to talk with the jurors afterwards, but did you have a sense of what drove the uh, the punitive damages uh, verdict? They, they so the compensatory verdict was a total of twenty four million. The punitive damages was fifty million. So obviously the jury, the jury, and after what you just said, I can see why the jury might be heated. Um, but they, um, you want to talk a little bit about what, in your mind, uh, drove the punitive damages? So we know what drove it. And I'll let Ron, I mean, it's, 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 we didn't talk to jurors. We were still in shock. It's Boone County. Right. I tried the case there two years earlier and lost. I just got reversed on appeal. Uh, but um, we, you know, we were still just, you know, the clients or the kids were there crying and the dad, but how we got the punitives, what motivated the jury. I mean, is I'll let Ron, it started in opening, it started in testimony. Uh, and it's something that we didn't expect and we didn't hear till trial. And I'll let Ron tell you about it because it, it anchored his entire closing on punitive. So, so going back, so as you can imagine, looking at those boards, our whole theory on punitives and the way we got past summary judgment on punitives and was based upon that they that they that this was reckless um, and wanton because they ignored this project knowingly and intentionally for months in favor of more profitable projects. So they were putting profit over safety. What, and then getting to your point, Steve, about the KYTC and, and trying to make this look like they had put their stamp of approval on it. The defense lawyer decides at pre the final pretrial conference to tell the judge uh, that we've got this all wrong and that what something they had never said in depositions, no expert they had had ever said, but he comes out of the woodwork with the every contract requires a safety wedge. There's a page 14 in every one of these contracts and they never do them and the state knows it and everybody knows it and it's just something that's in the contracts, but these safety wedges don't work and no one puts them in. And we're like, what, what, yeah. you know that. So when I'm putting on, um, you know, these, these, I have the KYTC chief engineer and I said, tell me about the secret deal. And he's like, what secret deal? I go, the one where they, it's always in the contract, but you never make them do it. He goes, I'm not aware of that. And I said, if there's testimony today that, that they never do it and that's okay with you, is that truthful testimony? No. And then Jay had uh, their expert accident reconstructionist on there who works for the KYTC all the time and said, is there a secret deal? And he said, no, there's no secret deal. Yeah, if it's in the contract, you have to do it. So we cut the legs out from under that. But then they put the vice president of the company on and trying to get the secret deal testimony going further says, how many times has page 14 been in a contract and you didn't do it and the state didn't say anything to you about it? And he goes 80 to 100. Yeah. So in closing, I go, folks, this didn't just happen on this road. You heard the testimony from the vice president. They have done this 80 to 100 times. That means there are 80 to 100 other roads in northern Kentucky that are just as dangerous as this road. And I don't know if half the time they got permission and maybe half the time they didn't or what the split is. I go, but you determine 
what percentage of the time you think they did it just like this and they concealed it from the KYTC and they didn't get permission and you give them a million dollars for every one of those. So I guess they took half. They took half of our. I, I was just going to say, I, I'm surprised. I, I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, they might've given 80 to a hundred million, but I mean, yeah, 50 million. Uh, that's that. Wow. 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 Um, <laughs> Well, well, guys, this is we've been talking for a long time, and this has been a really great discussion. Uh, I want to make sure, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our uh, listeners know about uh, the case, the Godwin versus Eaton uh, asphalt paving uh, company case that we haven't had a chance to tell them? I think one thing that we did was, especially after that pretrial, um, We'd already had our boards prepared, but we got back and we really, we, you know, I had a whiteboard up of things to do and Ron, and I would do check things off the list, but Ron had drafted an order of proof, you know, um, I think right before the pretrial, I believe, um, and kept tweaking it. And he kept saying, how can we get this on in two days or two and a half days, really two, because jury selection took all day Monday. So how can we really get this on, um, and he was very, very careful on the order of proof and about how long he thought. And he's like, I think I can get most of our case in through two people um, and that we don't need these other people that we had subpoenaed or we're going to call. So he, we in most of our exams, I mean, it's not like we did two, three hour direct exams. I mean, they were an hour, some 45 minutes. And but we got everything we there was there weren't wasted questions or fluff or I mean, it was right to the point. Um, and just like scalpel, you know, surgeon with a scalpel, we got to the point and, and that was the importance of how, how efficiently we planned it, how efficiently, and we put some people out of order. We called the cops second, we called, uh, Darren Carroll third. Um, and we were going to call them later, but we put them on early and Ron's like, Hey, day one, they've heard opening. They heard about the meth. Let's get the officer on. Let's get Darren Carroll on. Let's just, let's all confront this day one and and then the rest of the trial focus on on eating asphalt and that's what we're and, and that's what kind of what we plan so the, the prep in advance not waiting two weeks or a month before trial these many many months of strategizing and and having a plan and having plan a plan b plan c if we need it i think was a, is a big takeaway for everyone to really put thought into it because I, I think the efficiency helped us yeah yeah and I'll, I'll just say that i think that um really making the case about the road and not about the meth was was what, what we focused on and, yeah. and you know no matter what was being said at trial no matter how you know even if they were scoring points the defense lawyers were scoring points and getting some good testimony which they got at trial it happened but if it was about the road edge we just sat back and smiled because they were talking about the road edge and they weren't right. talking about a guy on methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rod, Rodney Jew talks about staying out of the purple box and the purple box in this case was methamphetamine. And so we just did everything we could to stay out of it. And they went along with us. So if we talked about the road edge, they had to get up and talk about the road edge. And every time they did that, they weren't talking about meth. And um, yeah, it, it was it just keeping, keeping it short. I mean, I will never, I will try to never again do a three-week trial. I mean, you 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 know what you're going to get from these witnesses. Just get it. Just yeah. get it and sit down. The jurors' attention span in this case, we had a new witness popping up constantly, and and they never had time to get tired or to fall asleep after lunch. It was quick. It was moving fast, 
Uh, you know, we were, we were animated, we're moving boards around and models. There was a lot of energy all the time and um, nobody droned on. And yeah. I think that that this jury, I had never seen a jury so just laser focused on a case like this one was. And I think doing it quickly was a, was a big part of that and using physical things instead of screens uh, was a big part too. So yeah. Yeah. A lot of things came together that were, were luck as I've already, as I've already mentioned, but we also took advantage of those opportunities and, and it just all, it all came together and it was an outstanding result for a great family. Well, and, and uh, trial lawyering is taking advantage of opportunity. I mean, so when you see, you see those things, even arguments by the other side and then turning them to help your case, like you did. And then as my wife, my very wise wife always says is luck favors the prepared. Um, so yeah, sometimes, you know, people who prepare a lot tend to be more lucky. Um, so, but anyways, I, I, that, that is, uh, this has been just a, such a great show. I think just filled with, uh, with great, uh, tips on strategy and how you try a case efficiently, quickly, and, um, and just get a tremendous re result. Um, uh, one last thing, and then I'll let you two go. We've, we've held you for so long. I think you said the status of the case is a motion for new trial right now. That's correct. Um, we'll have our response filed this week. Um, it's not a compelling motion for a new right. trial. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. I just have to say that the last motion for new trial that I had to argue against, some of it was based on the damages award and the, the defense lawyer kept saying that it was inconceivable that the jury would award this amount. <laughs> did, you, and did, did you put up Princess Bride? Like, can you believe was... I didn't? I wanted to <laughs> okay. so bad and I just didn't know if the judge would get it. He kept saying it's inconceivable, it's inconceivable. And oh, I so I, I wouldn't wanted to be, be like, it, it, it's I something think that word means it, it, you know and something that the listeners may not know that's that's unique to kentucky other states don't have this but you know in order for them to appeal they have to post a supersedious bond for the full right. 74 million and post-judgment interest is six percent compounded annually so um interest has started um and so that's a that's a big number and, yeah. and i guess we should ask is no caps on punitive damages or are there no, no, caps no caps in Kentucky at all. That is fantastic. How did you all manage that? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> we have a good uh, trial lawyers association with a good executive director who's a very shrewd lobbyist, and we don't pick sides. We give to pro-justice candidates, no matter what party they belong to. Yeah, yeah. And we just uh, tell people to protect the Constitution and the Seventh Amendment, and that's that has gotten traction up there. And not to say we haven't had some tort reform here and there, but compared to our neighbors all around us in Tennessee and Indiana and Ohio, especially, um, we're way, way better, way more justice in Kentucky for, for people. Well, that, that is fantastic. I mean, I, 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 big shout out to the Georgia trialers. They, they do the same thing. I, I can't say that we've been as successful as it sounds like you guys have been in Kentucky with the uh, avoiding caps, but, uh, but we'll, we'll just great, uh, fantastic work. Uh, for a very deserving family. Uh, let me just remind everybody, we've been talking about the Godwin versus Eaton Asphalt Paving Company case, which resulted in a total verdict of $74 million in July 2021, so just a, a month ago. Uh, and we have been talking to Ron Johnson and Jay Vaughn of Hindi Johnson Vaughn Emery. And if you want to look up uh, Ron or Jay, go to justicestartshere.com. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you all so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was enjoyable to relive it.
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.